Our scripture reading is from uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a listing of people in the Bible that exhibited characteristics of faith, that exhibited characteristics of blessings from God. And they show us what a life of faith can be and give us an example of what it should look like. And in verses 23 through 26 of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about Moses and Moses' journey of faith um, in God. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll begin at verse 23. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his great reward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Thank you for your servant Moses and for the example that he shows to us. Open up this passage of scripture about Moses' life so that we may, in faith, learn more about your will for us today. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we'll be looking at three points when it comes to Moses' life through this scripture. The first is the blessings of faith through our mothers and fathers. Second, we'll look at how Moses chose to suffer with God's people rather than to thrive with Pharaoh. And finally, how he suffered for the sake of Christ. First, we see the blessings of faith from our mothers and fathers. Now, let's set the stage. The Israelites have thrived in Egypt after they had fled there in the days of Joseph. They even outnumber the Egyptians, we learn in Exodus. And these Egyptians become frightened of this immigrant invasion. And so a new pharaoh who doesn't remember the service of Joseph to Egypt uses his royal power and influence to oppress and enslave the Israelites. But they keep multiplying Underneath the yoke of cruelty, they just keep making more and more Israelites. Exodus 1, uh, verses four, verse 14 says, The Egyptians made their lives bitter. The Egyptians made the Israelites' lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all of their demands. It's important to remember as we read this, that we aren't thousands of years removed from this kind of cruelty. This verse in Exodus could easily describe America in the days of even my great-great-great-grandfather. So as we consider the faith of Moses, we should be able to recognize in our own present and our not-too-distant past some of both the virtues and the evils of the people and the systems that are involved. And so Pharaoh, after enslaving the Israelites and finding that that's not enough to put them down, escalates things. 
Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 through 16 shows us that he starts to exterminate baby boys. All the baby boys born to Israelite women are to be murdered, and he lets the girls live. And this is particularly insidious, I think. It's not some mercy. Rather, considering the social status and the power dynamic between men and women of the day, it was probably a shrewd way of minimizing the risk of uprising and maximizing the number of servants available to Egyptians. The women are weak and can serve us. The men are strong and might rise up against us. Into this environment of fear and hatred of foreigners, which begat oppression and slavery, which begat child murder, Moses is born. It's interesting, his parents are of the tribe of Levi, and it's kind of easy to forget that. But in Exodus chapter 2, in Exodus chapter 28, the, uh, the Levites would be set apart through Moses' brother Aaron as the priests of the Old Testament. And it's interesting to see how God plants the seeds for our faith in the faith of our forebears. Now, we don't even know so much as Moses' parents' names, but we are told that they were faithful. The Bible tells us that they were faithful, and it was their faithfulness that saved Moses' life. The faithfulness of Moses' parents helped create the conditions that delivered the Israelites from bondage. I mean, just think how their faith in preserving their child cascaded into a series of events that shaped world history and advanced the story of salvation and redemption. Without Moses' parents, there is no Moses. Without the faith of Moses' parents, there is no Moses. And without no Moses, there is no parting of the sea. There's no manna coming down from heaven. There's no water from the rock at Rephidim. There's no revelation of the law at Sinai. And oh, what faith they had. They were worshipers who listened to God. God told them that their baby was special. Babies are a blessing for sure, but this baby, this baby was meant for something. God told them so, and they believed him. In order for them to even get the message that the baby was special, they had to have spent time in worship and prayer. The decision to defy Pharaoh couldn't have been the first time that they heard God. This couldn't have been just some casual feeling that they had. They must have had a deep faith in God to make this choice. It, they must have heard Him and obeyed before, many times before. And what do we make of their long-term plan? Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through, nine, 3 through 9 tells us that their plan is when they have a baby boy and they know that Pharaoh is out to murder all the baby boys, that they hide him for three months. And then, after three months, when they don't think they can hide him anymore, they float him down the river and they plant his big sister near a spot where Pharaoh's daughter bathes. Moses' family was kind of tricky in veiling, uh, engaging in surveillance. So they send him down the river. They plant the big sister near where Pharaoh's daughter bathes and hope 
that she has sympathy on this baby rather than running to dad to tell him about it so that it can be executed, so that she can realize that the baby needs a nurse, and so that Moses' sister will be right there to suggest, oh, I know someone, my mother, who can be the nanny. The odds of this plan succeeding are wild. It's not even like buying a lottery ticket. It's like throwing a dollar in the air and letting the wind blow it to the convenience store and just praying that the dude who picks it up decides to play the lottery, win the lottery, and then share the winnings with you. But let's be clear, faith is not some superpower that permits you to see the future or bend the universe to your will. No. The faith of Moses' parents, my faith, our faith, is even if you don't, faith. God, I know that you will protect my house against the murderers who have come to eliminate my child and my family, but even if you don't, God, I know you can raise this child up to be something important for your kingdom. But even if you don't, God, I know that you can work on the heart of the daughter of the man who threatens all of our lives. Even from her privileged existence, you can break her heart for this helpless immigrant child. But even if you don't, I have faith. The faith of these parents probably couldn't dream that their boy would bring liberation, but no matter what they expected, they proved that they believed that God could do it and that he would follow his plan even if his plan wouldn't be the thing that they expected. And this is the part where generally the preacher is supposed to say, now I'm not telling you to float your baby down the river, and I'm not. But at least metaphorically, you have to ask yourself, is your God big enough that you are confident He's got your best interests at heart if and when He leads you to do something wild, like metaphorically floating your baby down the river? Is your God big enough that no matter what He asks... You're prepared to do it. That's the size God that Moses' parents believed in. Second, Moses chose to suffer with God's people rather than to thrive with Pharaoh. He thought it more important to suffer with God's people. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was having lunch with an associate pastor at Heritage Church in Hattiesburg. Uh, and uh, he holds a doctorate from the University of Oregon. And he said that as a member of Pharaoh's house, Moses would have been highly trained and highly educated, that he probably spoke several languages, that he was probably an officer in the military, that he had it good. But these advantages clearly didn't draw him in too much because we learn that Pharaoh refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
And knowing what we know, our first thought is, man, what a principled stance, right? What a sense of justice he had. And, and it is, and he did. And there's no doubt, though, that we have the benefit of knowing the end result because at the time, this probably seemed like a strange choice. I want you to imagine someone who is taken in charitably by the daughter of a powerful man, maybe even an evil man, and he's raised in that powerful man's house. Surely the daughter isn't completely heartless. And she adopts this abandoned orphan who belonged to this mistrusted and undesirable ethnicity. And this orphan child, he has access to all of the privileges of society. And when he grows up, he refuses to be known as the son of this woman who took him in because of her relationship to the powerful, evil man. It seems like he's throwing away the relationship with at least a decent-hearted person. Maybe it is true, his keen sense of judgment or keen sense of justice. It's also a reaction that could be easily interpret, misinterpreted at the time. You know, Moses probably got called ungrateful, probably got called foolish. His own people probably had opposite distrustful reactions to him. You know, either he was well-positioned to plead their case. If he'd just play nice with Pharaoh, if this Moses would just play nice with Pharaoh, he's in a position to help us. Why does he refuse to be called Pharaoh's daughter when he's in a position to help us? Or maybe they'd think that he was an entitled hypocrite, that he was just feigning common cause with the oppressed people while still living luxuriously in Pharaoh's house. Hypocrite. At least one takeaway for us from Moses' life is that even if our actions are motivated by righteous justice, not everybody's going to see it that way. You will not always have the wisdom to see people's righteous sense of justice as charitably as you ought to. You might find yourself sore from some injustice and unable to react with grace towards someone, even someone good, who hasn't suffered the way you have suffered. You might overreact to someone who is trying to do the right thing but doesn't do it the way you think it ought to be done. Now, there's also the chance that Moses' sense of justice borders on self-righteousness. Because in dwelling upon the sins perpetrated upon his people, we know that Moses will eventually lash out in anger. He will kill an Egyptian for beating another Jew. Moses will mix in a good thing, his sense of justice, with a bad thing, rage and violence. And Moses will sin and commit a crime. See, the devil is very good at taking things and distorting and perverting them. Have you ever had one of these things in your life where you started out a project with good, holy intentions, but you found yourself straying from those good intentions? You know, like the color of the drapes issues 
where Satan inserts things like egos and oversensitivity into the church to divide people, to divide God's people and subvert God's will. We have to be mindful of that because the evil one will trick us into thinking that our ideas are God's ideas. When we stop being able to distinguish between our ideas and God's ideas, we are lost. We get a sense in Exodus that even though Moses was rightly offended by the injustice of the Egyptians toward the Israelites, his response to that injustice came from his own will, not God's will. It was therefore tainted by sin. So, at 40 years old, Moses murders an Egyptian in retaliation for the Egyptian beating an Israelite, and Moses becomes a fugitive. And that's the end of the story, right? He did something bad, and God punished him, and that highlights the most important aspect of Christianity, that people who do bad things get punished. No. Thankfully, that is not the end of our faith. God has a bigger imagination than that. No, God takes this flawed man, and he uses that man's mistakes in a work of grace and glory like only he can. Which brings me to my last point, that Moses suffered for the sake of Christ. Man, this phrase just encapsulates the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews, which is to highlight the divinity and the primacy and the undeniability of Jesus as Messiah. The writer is saying that Moses, the liberator of the Israelites, definitely on the Jewish Mount Rushmore, that this great Moses did what he did, suffered how he suffered, and all of that was for Christ's sake. Moses, who didn't even have the book of the prophets, the books of the prophets to flesh out the details of the coming Messiah, did all of this for Christ's sake? When he didn't know who Christ was? The author of Hebrews is relaying to his readers that as important as Moses is, and for all the miraculous things that he would be a part of, all of that was just prelude. It was all just setting up the battlefield so that Jesus could come and win the war. The very first part of Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and that is what Moses suffered for he suffered for the sake of that great coming truth and how little he knew compared to us we know so much more about the cost of our redemption and yet will it be said that we suffered for the sake of Christ 
Will it be said that we faced discomfort for the sake of Christ? Will it even be said that we faced inconvenience for the sake of Christ? Brothers and sisters, what have we given up for the sake of Christ? Because in view of what Christ has given up for us, the only response to that question has to be everything. We give up everything, and joyfully so. How? As we wrap things up, how was Moses suffering for the sake of Christ? And there are at least two lessons here that we can draw from Moses' life that point us to Christ. First, Moses' life in this text highlights the difficulty of having a presence in two worlds. And Moses had his royal life, and he also has his people that he cares for and sees suffering. Moses sees Egyptians mistreating his people, and he's moved to violence. In contrast, Jesus sees his people mistreating each other. And Jesus is moved to sacrifice. Moses' anger caused him to sin and be cast out from his place near the throne. But Jesus' love caused him to follow the Father's plan for redemption and voluntarily displace himself from the throne room of the Father. I want you to imagine the great weight on Jesus' shoulders, that it must have been not to lash out in righteous anger sometimes. Moses saw all this mistreatment. Think of all the injustices that Jesus saw. Let's put it in southern terms, in ways that we southerners can understand. I want you to imagine Jesus on the cross, and there's his mother, Mary, and the soldiers are taunting him and ridiculing him. And his mom is right there. Do you think they were treating her with respect? With dignity? It's doubtful. On top of everything else, Jesus is watching a bunch of Roman soldiers treat his mama like trash, and he has the power to come down off that cross and smite them. But he doesn't. Think of how often he must have seen some injustice or some wrongdoing and had to just decline to use his universe-building powers to stop it. Moses' imperfections point us to the man who can be from a royal house but also be among his people. Moses' mistakes point us to the man who doesn't just react to injustice, he undoes it. Moses' inability to navigate and control his feelings point us to the man who embodies the purest feeling of love and acts out that love perfectly. And the second thing that we can take is Moses goes into 40-year exile, and what does he become? 
What does he become? What is his vocation? He becomes a shepherd. He tends a flock for his father-in-law, Jethro. And here we see the great providence of God working out his plan because for the first 40 years of his life, God causes Moses to be an educated, sophisticated person in Pharaoh's house. Like I said, probably an officer in the military where he might learn things like, oh, I don't know, strategic ways of organizing and moving large numbers of people. And then in the next 40 years... He becomes a shepherd. Exodus 3, verses 9 through 11 says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God talking to Moses. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. <laughs> So much had to be going through Moses' mind. Because what would be going through my mind is, oh, now you hear the cries of the Israelites? Because I heard them so often that I killed a guy over it. And now, now that I'm 80 years old and I'm tending a flock, you think now is the time for me to go. Now, maybe that wasn't what was going through Moses' mind. Is just what would have gone through mine. But you know, God has His time. Things work according to His plan. And maybe when Moses was 40, he wasn't ready to lead the Israelites when he was younger. Maybe he was a hothead. Maybe he was young, inexperienced military commander. And when they got cornered at the Red Sea, instead of turning to God for a solution, he would have turned and tried to fight, and he would have lost. But shepherding, oh, 40 years of shepherding is humbling because sheep are vulnerable. They have practically no defense mechanism, and they aren't compliant they're stubborn, and they'll stray from you. But shepherding is humbling. The sheep are vulnerable. They have practically no defense mechanism. They will stray from you. They aren't always compliant. They're stubborn, in fact. And does this sound like God's people to you? For the sake of Christ, Moses became a type of shepherd, first for an actual flock and then for the Israelites. To not just liberate the Israelites, but further to live out an era of history that points to our eternal liberation from sin and death. And there's this thing about shepherding, and it's called breaking the lamb's leg. And I'm not talking about a fracture. I'm talking about a weight. The shepherds would take a weight and they would put it on the legs of the lamb or the sheep that was prone to run away. And the weight would keep them close to the shepherd, close to the flock where they were safe. 
God allowed Moses to suffer certain burdens in his life. He put certain weights on his life. He allowed him to be raised as a foreigner. He allowed him to have his sense of justice be perverted by anger. He allowed him to be exiled as a consequence of his sins. Moses' burdens, his breaks on his legs, shaped him and drew him closer to God. What breaks has God put on your leg? Is he trying to use them to draw you closer to him? Is he allowing you to suffer for the sake of Christ? And once you realize what God has planned for you, doesn't it seem like the weight begins to fall off? From the faith of his parents to the protection under Pharaoh's daughter to his sense of justice and even through his anger to his humble training shepherding a flock, it's clear that God had a plan for Moses. Moses' life is an example for us, not necessarily just for the incredible miracles and achievements, but for the way that God was faithful to Moses. In the same way, we can put our faith in this benevolent, all-knowing, all-powerful God and have faith that He has a plan for us.